Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Good morning. Hey, good to be here. Good to be with you this morning. Dr. Aiken, thank you for that introduction. And I do just want to take a second as well and just thank the entire preaching faculty. Uh, My time here at Southeastern uh, and especially in the preaching program has really been one of the more formative spiritual experiences uh, in my life. And that's due to your investment and the impact that you've had on me. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm really, really grateful for that. And then I also want to uh, specifically take some time and thank uh, Dr. Pace. Dr. Pace, um, uh, thank you just for uh, everything that you've done and the outsized influence and impact that you've had on my life. Um, Going all the way back uh, to OBU, just the over the years, the friend and the mentor and the listening ear and uh, just the voice of wise counsel uh, that you've been uh, so much of who I am uh, for better or for worse, as a, as a husband and a new father and a pastor and a preacher, it really does owe to your influence uh, on my life. So thank you for that. Um, well, we just wrapped up a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, at Veritas at our church. And so as I was uh, thinking and praying through what to bring to you today to hopefully encourage and exhort and challenge you, I, I thought... Uh, a message from 1 Corinthians would fit the bill, and so uh, we're going to go be in 1 Corinthians, but we'll be in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, you can make your way there. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 is where we'll spend our time this morning, and depending on where you're from, you may or may not have heard of this, but there are a few cities uh, that have the slogan, keep their city weird. Uh, And there's some debate about where this got started, whether it got started in Portland, Oregon, or in Austin, Texas. But being from Oklahoma, I hate the University of Texas with a hatred that that I at least think uh, is righteous. And so we're going to say that it got started in Portland, Oregon, even if Wikipedia might say something different. Uh, But they both have this slogan, keep Portland weird and keep Austin weird. Uh, If you haven't been to either of those cities, you're not familiar with those, think of Asheville here in North Carolina. Uh, Asheville has apparently picked up this slogan too, and apparently they also have the saying that if you're too weird for Asheville, uh, you're just too weird. And if you've been over there, uh, you know that's true. Asheville is a very, very different sort of city. It really doesn't feel like any other city in North Carolina in the same way that Austin doesn't really feel like it belongs with the rest of Texas. Because they, they all just have some really weird things. For example, uh, Austin has a bar where every Saturday you can play bingo with chicken poop. Uh, and so the chicken is walking over a board with numbers on it, and whichever number it decides to go number two on, if that's your bingo number for the day, uh, you're the winner of chicken bingo. Uh, Portland has a voodoo donut shop that you can also get married in, which I guess would save you some money on catering. And Asheville has a guy who dresses up like a nun and then rides one of those carnival bicycles with the big wheels all throughout uh, the city. And that, that's all pretty different, right? I mean, that, that's a little bit weird. And it, it, it seems like this slogan got started as a way for them to kind of resist the commercialization of their cities. They, they don't want to fit in the box and be a, a cookie-cutter type of city. They're weird, they're unique, they're different, and they know that, and they want to own that. They want to center on what makes them unique and different uh, and keep it that way. They want to stay weird. 
Well, if I could sum up what Paul is calling us to here in 1 Corinthians today, and what I want to encourage you with, whether you're a pastor or a church leader, teaching or preaching in some form or fashion right now, or you will be in the future, uh, what, what Paul is calling us here to today, I believe, is to keep Christianity weird. Really, not obviously in the sense of voodoo donut shops or chicken bingo, but in the sense that Christianity really isn't like every other religion. Our gospel is not just one similar message among the many competing for attention. Uh, and, And our gospel is weak and foolish to most of the world, and we should center on that. We shouldn't try to tone that down, shave off the rough edges, or try to pretty it up. We should keep Christianity weird and stay centered on the weirdness of the gospel. And so let's look at how to do that together now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And so starting in verse 18, the very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together for God's help. Uh, Father, as we come to you now and and hear your word preached, God, would you meet us here? God, I I pray that um, for, for those sitting in this room, for those who might be Uh, watching this online or watching later, that you would encourage them in the gospel this morning, that you would encourage them not to uh, give up on the gospel, not to switch it out for other things, but to stay centered on it. God, would you uh, stir us up to do that even now uh, through the preaching of your word? I pray that you would. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, two movements we see in this passage. Paul tells us that we have a loser gospel and a gospel for losers. A loser gospel and a gospel for losers. First, a loser gospel. Paul begins this passage by telling us that the word of the cross, the gospel message, is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
And he backs this up with a quote from Isaiah 29 to show us that this is actually God's design, that God has always intended it to be this way, that God has intended that the world would not come to know him through their own wisdom. He intends to show that their wisdom is actually foolishness, that you have to come through the foolishness of the cross. Uh, When Paul says in verse 20, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He's just pointing at all of the experts of the day and saying, no one predicted this. No one called this. No one reasoned it out and figured this out on their own. No one knew, yeah, that's how God is going to save the world. This came as a shock and a surprise to everyone. Because just think about for a minute the, the message that we're proclaiming, the word of the cross. Uh, Obviously, crucifixion is not a part of our society anymore, and the cross is not a scandal to us because people get crosses tattooed on them. People wear crosses as necklaces and and jewelry, and some of the weirdness of that gets lost on us, especially when people who aren't followers of Jesus do that because let's remember the cross was a torture device. I mean, wearing a cross around your neck as a piece of jewelry back in this day would have been like today wearing a a noose or an electric chair as a necklace. Like it doesn't make sense to do this. And so if we're really going to grasp what Paul is getting at here, I think we need to be freshly reminded of the scandal and the shame of the cross. Uh, Fleming Rutledge is really helpful on this aspect of the cross in her book on the crucifixion. I'd recommend it to you, but, but she just points out that and crucifixion was the most shameful and degrading and humiliating way to die during the time of the New Testament. It was reserved for only the lowest classes of society because it was so dehumanizing and degrading. It was designed to do that, to dehumanize and degrade you as much as possible, to leave you to die less like a person and more like an animal left for dead. And and crucifixions were a public affair. The crosses would line the roads on the way into cities, and that was a way for Rome to intimidate people and to say, hey, here's what's going to happen to you if you try anything against us. If you try to revolt against us, you're going to end up like them. Do you want to do that? Uh, You'd be stripped naked and left hanging to die while you just waited to choke to death on your own blood. And and we see this in the Gospels with Jesus. People would walk by and they'd mock you and they'd spit on you and they'd curse at you while you hung there just waiting to die in absolute shame. Your dignity was completely taken from you while you died, again, less like a person and more like an animal left for dead. And when Paul says we preach Christ crucified, obviously Christ is the word for Messiah, for a king. And so Paul says our good news is that our king got crucified. Our good news is that we worship a king who got condemned and beaten and executed with the most shameful, humiliating death imaginable. Our good news is that uh, we are so sinful that we need the humiliating, excruciating death of Jesus, that the, the cross, that's actually what saves people and transforms their lives. That that we're saying that Jesus proves that he's the true king of the universe who's worthy of our lives and our worship and our following uh, through the cross. That, that Jesus defeats death and sin, not through a display of military strength, but through dying and rising from the dead. Like, that's a ridiculous message. That's a loser gospel. 
Because where else would you glory in somebody who got beaten and condemned and executed as a criminal? I think sometimes because, you know, God has opened our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, and it makes sense to us that we just automatically assume it's going to make sense to everybody else, but it does not make sense. Uh, It is so backwards and counterintuitive to everything that we experience and every other message that we hear in our world. I mean, even in something as simple as sports, you laugh at people who are fans of teams that lose all of their games, or you feel sorry for them, but you don't freely choose to join them as a fan of that team. And the people in our culture that we hold up to as examples and models to follow and want to be like are people who have gotten ahead, people who have made something of themselves, people who have become a success, people who win, not people who lose and get condemned and executed. If this were to happen today, uh, no one would see someone claiming to be a king getting crucified and executed and say, yeah, that's wisdom. That's what I want my God to be like. That's the type of king I want to follow. That's where the good life is found. I want to take up my cross and follow in the footsteps of that guy. Now, in the cultural standard of what matters, Jesus is a loser, and to give your life to following him, to take up your cross and follow after him, is ridiculous and foolishness. But, what Paul, but Paul is saying that what is foolish in our eyes is actually the wisdom and the power of God. Notice again how Paul expands on this in verse 22 through 24. He says, "'For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom.'" But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jewish people were demanding signs. They were looking for a a, a strong man, a ruler who could come and could overthrow Rome and their enemies and reestablish them as God's kingdom on earth. Gentiles, Greeks, uh, they were looking for wisdom. This is the hotbed of philosophy. And so, then they're looking for something that's intellectually respectable, that lines up with the philosophies of the day as to how you get the good life. But did you notice that Paul does not give that to them? He says, Jews are demanding this, Greeks are seeking after this, but we preach Christ crucified. We don't give them signs or worldly wisdom. Uh, We preach the cross. Yes, the cross is a stumbling block to those who are looking for something powerful, and it's foolishness to those who are looking for worldly wisdom. But Paul does not care. He just keeps preaching Christ crucified. And listen, because this is the case today, because the gospel is still so counterintuitive and so backwards in our world, because the message of of calling people to recognize that they're sinners who need to repent of their sin and put their trust in the crucified king and take up their cross, deny themselves and follow after him, because that message is so backwards and counterintuitive to everything that we hear today, This is still going to be the same temptation we face today, this temptation to replace the gospel or tone down the gospel for signs and wisdom. You see, our temptation as teachers and preachers will be to tone down the weirdness of the gospel, to try to downplay it and try to, uh, and Jesus' hard call to discipleship, to try to fit it into what the world looks at as wise and as powerful. Because listen, our our hearers are going to demand signs and seek wisdom. 
For example, our, our flesh craves being able to say that we did something to save ourselves, that we did something to contribute to our salvation. And so our flesh craves the practical. We crave things that we can put into practice and say, yeah, I did that and my life got better. I improved myself. And all of us come to church on Sundays with really the, the kind of primary issues of what our lives are about front and center in our lives. We come to church thinking about the fight that we had with our spouse and the struggles we're having in our marriage or the difficulties we've had in parenting, raising our children, or the frustrations that we're having at work or the issues that we're having with a strained relationship or friendship or the loneliness or anxiety that we feel. Like, we're all coming to church with those concerns front and center on our minds and wanting answers for those, wanting to know how those things can get better and how we can improve those things. And in the midst of all of that clamoring for our attention, knowing as preachers and teachers that's what we're thinking about, that's what our hearers are thinking about, it starts to get real easy to feel like the gospel doesn't really work for that. That the gospel doesn't really speak to those things, especially when you're preaching the gospel and the baptism tank doesn't get filled up for a while and people aren't coming in droves to hear the gospel being preached. When you preach the gospel week after week after week and it feels like nothing is really happening, when you preach the gospel week after week and marriages in your church are still crumbling and horrific sin is getting exposed and you're getting criticism about, man, can't you talk about something else? Can't you do something a little bit more relevant and a little bit more practical? And so you start to believe that criticism and you drive home on Sundays thinking about, man, I I really just kind of said the same thing that I said last week and it's really not working. Nothing is happening. I've, I've got to change this up. I've got to give people something more practical and relevant, something with handles on it. And when that happens, the, it gets very tempting to start to want to switch out the gospel for good advice. It, it gets a lot easier to start to, again, tone down the weirdness and the foolishness of the gospel message and Jesus' hard call to discipleship in favor of instead just dispensing out life hacks for people to help them improve their lives. Because listen, you can measure that. If all you give people is, hey, here's three ways to improve your marriage. You should pray together. You should have a time during the day where you talk about each other's day. You should find one practical way that you can serve each other every day. Or or here's four ways to win at work, to help your frustrations at work. Show up early. Don't complain like your coworkers do. Submit to your boss even when you don't want to. Make sure you finish all your projects on time. Like if that's all that you give people, No one's going to get angry at you for preaching or teaching that, and and you can measure that. You can measure if they put those principles into practice. And the craziest thing about it is if they do put those principles into practice and it doesn't work for them, if their marriage doesn't improve or work still is, it still stinks and it's still frustrating, they're not going to blame you. They'll blame themselves. They'll think, well, it's, it's just because I didn't put the principles into practice well enough. I just need to try harder this week. And they'll keep coming back to hear your good advice preaching because good advice, it sounds like wisdom and it sounds so practical and relevant and common sense and it might even fool you into believing that it's working. But it's not. 
Because the reality is that you can, that people can be the best parent and the best spouse and the best employee and be so motivated and inspired by your preaching and give you lots of pats on the back and still go to hell. Like good advice is good advice. It's helpful, but, but Oprah and Dr. Phil can give that to your people. Why don't you give them something that the self-help section at Barnes and Noble can't? Why don't we give them the gospel? Because good advice cannot save them and it cannot transform their lives. Only the gospel can do that. That's why Paul sticks to it even when people are demanding to hear something else from him. Notice again what he says in verse 21. He says, in God's wisdom, God has made it so that the world would not come to know him through their own wisdom. Instead, through the foolishness of what we preach, he's chosen to save those who believe, which means that God has chosen to save through the foolishness of the gospel message and nothing else. And so I want to encourage you, stick to the gospel. Even when it doesn't feel like it's working, it is. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And listen, I'm not saying don't make application in your sermons. If you're not making application, I argue you probably aren't preaching or teaching. I'm saying in the midst of making application, make sure that you don't forget to actually get around to preach the gospel. I'm saying make your application more than just disconnected bits of good advice with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. I'm saying don't assume the gospel so you can hurry on past that and get to the practical and relevant stuff. The gospel is the practical and the relevant stuff because God uses the gospel to work a more lasting transformation in the hearts and lives of our hearers than good advice ever could. Because when people grasp the love of a God who would take on flesh and be crucified for them, who would humiliate himself in this way to reconcile them back to himself, even though they had done nothing to earn it or deserve it, when they were running away from him, man, eventually they're going to want to start to love others in the way that they have first been loved by God. When people grasp in their hearts the way that Jesus has freely served them, even when they did not deserve it, eventually they're going to want to start freely serving others who don't deserve it because they want to follow after Jesus. And make those applications. Show how the gospel works that change in people's life. Get people's eyes on Jesus and watch them start to transform from the inside out. And again, it's not like you can easily measure the way that the gospel is transforming people, and it's not like this happens overnight. Yeah, but, but don't you want the testimony of, after just even a few years of a preaching or a teaching ministry in some place, for someone to come up to you and to say, man, I, I, I couldn't have put my finger on it at first, but lately I've realized that I learned how to point my children to Jesus and talk about Jesus with my kids through the way that you handle the Bible in your teaching ministry and you consistently point us to Jesus. Or when you walk through that series in the Gospel of Mark and you just put the beauty and the glory and the humility of Jesus on display week after week after week, eventually God used that to convict me of my selfishness and the ways I was sinning towards my spouse and God used that to begin to heal our marriage. Or God, through the way that you just put the beauty and glory of Jesus on display every week, I've been able to handle my frustrations at work a whole lot better because now I don't look to work to give me happiness and meaning and purpose and identity. I know now that only Jesus can do that. 
And even better than all of that, don't you want people to get in the baptism tank and have the testimony of, man, I had given myself over to this. I had enslaved myself to this. I was running so far from God, but then Jesus met me, and I saw how Jesus had lived the perfect life in my place, and then he went and died on the cross in my place for my sins to take my punishment, and he rose from the dead to give me life and victory in him forever. And don't you want to see people move from dead in their sins to life and faith in Jesus? Well, well, good advice preaching, it can't raise the dead and it can't transform people's lives. Only the gospel can do that. And so stick to the gospel. Keep Christianity weird. Center on the crucified king. Preach that real life is found in you dying to your old life and taking up your cross and following after Jesus. Preach the loser gospel of a king crucified for our sins and raised for our life with him from every text of scripture every week. Because we have a loser gospel, but not only do we have a loser gospel, we have a gospel for losers. Look back again uh, at verse 26 with me. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul turns to the Corinthians and says, hey, not only was our gospel not that impressive in the eyes of the world, neither were most of you. I mean, most of you weren't A-listers. Most of you weren't frequenting the red carpet. And I'd imagine that's true of us in here today as well, is it not? Like, I'd venture to guess that most of us in here were not voted most likely to succeed in high school. I'd venture to guess that you can think about people, whether it's former classmates or friends or family members in your life, that you feel like, man, it would have been so much easier for God to save them and call them into ministry because They just have such a natural leadership ability. They've got charisma. People follow them and gravitate to them, or they just know their Bible so well, or they're just so smart or whatever, or they're so gifted and talented, and it would make so much more sense for God to use them. But Paul is saying, but yet God chose you and set his love on you to shame what the world looks at as strong and as powerful and as important and to show that those things mean nothing in the eyes of God. I mean, this is what God does. God takes losers and nobodies and people that the world overlooks and marginalizes, and he saves them and transforms their lives and accomplishes great work through them. If you don't believe me, if you, if you need proof that God does that, basically just open up to any page of your Bible. One of the major themes of the story of the Bible is this, how God takes losers and fools and transforms them and accomplishes great things for his purposes and his plans and his glory through them. 
I mean, I'll just run through a few for you. Abraham and Sarah, God doesn't give them the child of promise when they're young and they're fertile in their childbearing years when it would have made sense to. He waits until they're old. Well, they're, they say they're as good as dead when Sarah is barren and way past menopause, when it's biologically impossible for them to have a child. And then God gives them the child of promise because nothing's too hard for the Lord. Jacob was a cheater and a deceiver, yet he's the one that God set his love on and used. Leah was unloved compared to her sister Rachel, and yet she's the one that the Messiah came through. Judah was a moral degenerate for the vast majority of his life, but again, he's the one that the Messiah came through, not Joseph. Moses had a temper and couldn't speak well. In Deuteronomy 7, God says he did not choose Israel because they were the greatest and most powerful of all the nations. He says you guys were actually the weakest and smallest of all of the nations. Rahab was a Gentile and a prostitute. God whittled Gideon's army down to 300 men to fight against multiple tens of thousands. Ruth was a Moabite and a widow. David was the runt of his family. His dad didn't even think to parade him before Samuel, had no thought that he could be the king. Peter was a brash hothead who had the worst case of foot and mouth disease known to man. Jesus gave James and John the nickname Sons of Thunder because they were always trying to throw down on somebody, wanting to rain down fire from heaven. And Paul was a terrorist and a murderer before Jesus met him. This is what God does. This is all that God does. And verse 29 says the reason that God does this is so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. When God saves and he transforms and he uses fools and losers and nobodies, that people who are looked down upon in the eyes of the world, it's clear that the glory and the credit for that should not go to them. Imagine that you had uh, some musical chops and you were uh, a conductor of an orchestra and you were tasked with uh, having six months to prepare a bunch of three-year-olds to play together as an orchestra. And let's say after six months, like you've actually got these three-year-olds humming. Like they're playing this beautiful symphony. They've got a recurring show down at the Durham Performing Arts Center down the road. I mean, these kids are putting Bach to shame. Now, if, if that were to happen, where should the credit for those performances go? To the three-year-olds or to you as the conductor? Obviously to you as the conductor, right? It's hard enough to get three and four-year-olds to do anything other than pick grass in the outfield when they're playing t-ball. It would only be your work as the conductor that can make something that outlandish happen. Well, that, that's really what's going on here. God takes fools and losers and nobody. He has a much tougher job description than getting three-year-olds to play together as an orchestra, and he accomplishes great work through them so that no one would get confused on where the credit belongs to him. And listen, that makes the gospel really good news. The good news is that God loves losers, and the gospel is for losers, and so if you feel like a loser, if you feel like, man, there's so many other people who are just way more gifted and talented than me, way better leaders than me, way smarter than me, on and on and on, you're actually at an advantage because you realize you're not bringing anything to the table when it comes to this relationship with Jesus, that it's all him, and you won't be constantly trying to steal his glory. See, God is showing us here that you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be gifted and talented. You don't have to have leadership savvy. You don't have to be somebody to be loved and used by Jesus because it's his power at work. 
And notice again the stress that Paul puts on this. Three times he says, God chose what is weak. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is low and despised. God chose, God chose, God chose. God did this. And if we will grasp this truth, it will be so incredibly freeing to us because the Bible is teaching us here that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus because God set his love on you and chose you from the foundation of the world. Picked you out and he said, her, I want her, him, he's mine, and I'll lay my cards on the table. It's not as if God looked down the halls of time and saw that you were going to choose him, and then in response to your choice of him, he chose you on the basis of that. Now remember, this is a loser gospel. This is a foolish message. No one would believe it left to themselves. But God, in his grace, opened our eyes and set his love and grace on us and gave us the faith to believe in a king crucified for our sins and raised for our life and freedom in him. God did that. And if that's true, and it is, and that brings incredible comfort and security because if God chose you and set his love on you independent of anything you did to earn it or deserve it, it means there's nothing you can do to jeopardize it or lose it. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. There's no reason that God should have chosen us and and called us into ministry, but he has. And because he has, you and I are secure. This is a foundational truth that we have to do ministry out of. Otherwise, you're going to be doing ministry as a way to try to earn God's love and favor. You're going to credit all of the successes and growth in your ministry to your own talents and abilities. And you're going to trust in your talents or abilities. Or as a means to shore up your own insecurity, you're going to start to think that you're a lot better and more deserving than the people that you lead or you pastor. And it's really, really hard to pastor and lead people that you fundamentally think that you're better than. But the gospel will kill all of that pride because anything that we could use to mark ourselves out as more deserving and better than others gets crushed in the cross. I'm riffing off of Alistair Begg here, but but anything you could use to say God saved me and called me to ministry because I, because I had faith, because I know my Bible really well, because I'm so gifted and talented, because I can be a really valuable asset to God's team. Anything you could use to say, uh, God saved me and called me to ministry because I, like the gospel cuts that sentence off. Anytime you say, God saved me and called me to ministry because I, like stop, don't pass go, don't collect $200, go back to the beginning of that sentence And that sentence needs to say, no, God saved me and called me to ministry because he, because he is so gracious, because he is so good, because he set his love on me and chose me independent of anything I did to earn it or deserve it. And and since that's the case, there's no ground for pride or for boasting because everyone else here and everyone you'll lead or pastor who's been saved by Jesus has the same story. God saved me because he because he is so gracious, because he is so kind. If God sees fit to call you into ministry leadership, man, it's because of him. 
It's not because you were so savvy or you were so gifted or you were so important and God really needed to have you on his team. And so instead of boasting in ourselves, now we're freed up to boast in Jesus because verse 30, Jesus has become our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Jesus is the reason we stand right before God. Jesus is the reason that our sins are forgiven. Jesus is the reason we know the way that the world actually works. Jesus is the reason that our lives are being transformed to look more like his. It's all because of him. And so we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in him. We give him the credit and the glory and we keep our ministry centered on him because our ministries are meant to reflect the foolishness of the message that we proclaim. Uh, I first heard Tim Keller relay this story, but uh, he tells the story of, of Dick Lucas. Dick Lucas was a, a pastor and a preacher in uh, England in the 1900s, and Dick Lucas tells the story about the time that Billy Graham came to preach uh, a student conference to the University Students of Cambridge in 1955. And so he gets scheduled to preach this conference, a week-long conference in 1955, and, in the, uh, my, and if you know anything about Cambridge, you know uh, that's kind of where the cream of the crop went. That's where the best and the brightest in England were going in that time to Cambridge and to Oxford. And so the London press in the months leading up to this conference, they were actually criticizing Billy Graham pretty heavily, running articles and talking about things like, how is this hick fundamentalist uh, from the hills of North Carolina, what, like what's he gonna do and come and preach to our best and brightest students? What does he have to say to them? And that criticism affected him really heavily. And so in the months leading up to this conference, he did a crash course uh, on important intellectuals and philosophers and tried to uh, brush up on all of his philosophy. And the first four nights of the conference when he gets there, he's quoting all these intellectuals and philosophers, trying to sound smart, trying to show these students, hey, I've got chops, I can hang, I'm just as smart as you are. And Conference is not going well. People are not responding to the preaching. And so after four nights of doing that, uh, in his words, Billy decided to scrap all of that. And for the last night, he said he was just going to preach on the blood. He was going to preach on the blood of Jesus. And so Dick Lucas says that last night of the conference, Billy Graham gets up there and opens up and starts in Genesis and for 45 minutes just walks through every blood sacrifice in the Old Testament showing how it was all leading to the bloody sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He just lets it eat and preaches Jesus and the cross and how these students are sinners and they need to repent and trust in Jesus to save them. And after preaching this, he gives the invitation to respond and 400 of the 10,000 university students there that night came forward to give their lives to Jesus. And years after this, Dick Lucas meets a guy who's in ministry now, and he gets to talking to him, and Dick Lucas asks him, hey, where did Christian things begin for you? And the guy says, Cambridge, 1955, when Billy Graham was here. And Dick Lucas asks him, well, well, what night? And he says, the last night. All I remember was walking out of the cathedral that night thinking, wow, Christ really died for me. That's the power of of the gospel. And so preach the blood. Keep Christianity weird. Center on the crucified king. Yes, it's going to be weakness and foolishness to much of the world, but it's the power and the wisdom of God. And God will continue to save and transform people's lives through the power of the cross. It's what he loves to do. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the message of the cross and the power of the cross. 
God, would you help us to believe that this is true? That even though it is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world, it's your power and wisdom, and that you, your weakness is stronger than men, and your foolishness is wiser than men. God, help us to stay centered on the gospel and not trade it out for anything else. Help us to not give up on it. Uh, help us to stay centered here in our lives and in our ministries. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.